I'm George Kamidi, and this is First Watch. The financial sector is undergoing dramatic change. Like many industries, the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated digital transformation initiatives and the way banking does business generally. But another pandemic is also pressuring the sector, and that's the surge of ransomware and cyber attacks. Add to that the executive order on cybersecurity at the beginning of the year and the SEC's recent enforcement actions for cyber lapses. As always, I wanted to turn to someone who knows far more about this topic than I do. So we got in touch with Chris Hetner, a cyber leader with deep experience in finance across both the private and public sectors. The man's CV is remarkable. He advises the National Association of Corporate Directors. He was the senior cybersecurity advisor to the SEC chair. He was global CISO at GE Capital and SVP of Information Security at Citi, among many others. So without further ado, let's get into it with Chris Hetner. Chris Hetner, welcome to First Watch. We're happy to have Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this Good is a long time, yeah, long time coming. So uh, we'll, we'll, you've got a lot of ground to cover. You've got a storied career. We'll get into that. Um, so I want to draw on your deep experience in both the private sector and the public sector, um, especially when it comes to the financial area. So what do you think are the top three issues facing the financial sector when it comes to cyber resilience in this moment? It's a great question, George. And in fact, uh, we've given you know, some thought on this, particularly when I spent uh, four years with the Securities Exchange Commission serving as the senior advisor to the chair's office and uh, was also a senior member as part of the U.S. Department of Treasury's Financial Banking Information Infrastructure Committee. Uh, so we, we've given you know, a lot of thought to this. We've conducted several exercises across uh, critical segments of the financial services sector. And you know, our, our you know, initial uh, conclusions and analysis, and again, this continues to evolve. Um, this is you know, obviously not a point in time assessment, but number one, it's really um, liquidity. It's access to capital. to ensure that uh, folks like you and I have access to our consumer banking accounts, the money's flowing properly. Uh, there's a level of redundancy and assurance to the sector participants and the public that their money and their financial system. Uh, so those, those are, you know, kind of the core tenets of uh, how we think about, you know, the level of access to capital and the, the fact that it flows smoothly and is accessible to the public. Uh, but if you kind of unpeel that onion a bit, you think about, okay, so what are the cyber technological implications? Well, clearly, there has to be, you know, level of redundancy. Um, the level of integrity associated with data as it flows uh, from one entity to the other. There are um, areas and pockets of the financial market called market utilities. Uh, mm -hmm. These are significantly important financial market utilities, SIF moves as per Dodd-Frank. Um, and these are entities that clear and process uh, payment transactions they settle uh, payments in, and across not only the consumer platform, but also from a B2B, you know, enterprise to enterprise perspective. Some of these market utilities, they pay and settle upward of six to $7 trillion a day. So these are massive uh, segments yeah. of the market. So that, that's an area that is of high 
perspective, but also from a data integrity perspective. Uh, imagine inserting uh, false data and try to unwind trillions of dollars of transactions to ensure that you've got the correct amount in, in that payment and settlement process. I mean, that's then, like functionally like critical infrastructure, just that's in a, right. That's right. Bits and bytes of data. And the way, and the way we think about, you know, the sector as a whole, I mean, there are just in the securities market. I mean, there are tens of thousands of companies like, you know, almost if you think about the, you know, number of assets, it's in the hundreds of trillions of dollars, but you have to think through, you know, distill this down into what we call concentric circles. You know, how do you get to mm -hmm. the core of those market participants to look at the most critical segments? And while serving at the commission, and this was post Dodd Frank, we issued a regulation called Reg SCI, Systems Compliance Integrity. And that was really designed uh, to focus in on those core market participants from a payment settlement perspective uh, think through the core exchanges, uh, some of the market utilities that we mentioned before, DTCC, uh, CLS groups, and a large broker dealers, where <clears throat> you're creating aggregate risk, concentration risk. Mm. And that, that ultimately is what kept us at, up at night in terms of maintaining resilience across the, the financial services market. You know, how do we ensure that these global, highly concentrated institutions at the end of the day are, are safe and sound, they're, they're liquid in terms of access to capital and cash, and the relationship between those global institutions and those market utilities and other participants are seamlessly working in a cohesive, trustworthy way. And, and, um, and that, to me, is really where we think about systemic risk and the systemic risk associated with the connectivity of the financial markets is at its core um, the, the area that uh, really keeps us up at night. And we, you know, we still continue to focus on this. In fact, I'm <clears throat> still advising the U.S. Treasury uh, through uh, a market study analysis on resilience, uh, cybersecurity, and the dependency on suppliers and, and how this is, represents risk to the financial services market. I think that's a useful analogy to think about, you know, not uh, risk as a a one-off but these it can like pool in these areas right as it concentrates whether it's because of layers of data or because of interconnectivity of systems i think that's a useful um, way to think about it but i, I want to change tack here from public to private sector so we've talked a lot uh on this podcast about how the pandemic has basically poured jet fuel into digital transformation you know i think a couple of months ago, the, the Bank of America CIO for consumer small bills and wealth management basically said digital demand is here to stay. And they're trying to make investments in that direction. Um, for the financial sector, I assume digital transformation, quote unquote, has just as much to do with how employees work uh, and how they connect and communicate with customers to drive growth, right? So we know financial services being heavily regulated is kind of a big ship that's slow to turn. At the same time, we see new communication applications seeming to surface every day. So your time at Citigroup, your time in the in the public sector, how do you see how the financial sector can innovate and embrace new communication channels, but 
you know, without slowing down your team's regulatory risk and burden. I ask because we've we've talked with some institutions, for example, that have collaboration suites like MS Teams, but they've actually turned off file sharing. So think about that for a second. They have collaboration without collaboration, right? Which seems just like a very tricky business proposition. It's a it's a hard tug of war to reconcile. It's totally contrary to the mission of the technology. And that, right. and that, and that, and that, that in itself is the challenge. And, and, you know, while the pandemic has thrown gasoline on the fire as pertains to distributed workforce and abundance of applications that are supporting that distributed workforce and the need to collaborate in such a way, given that distribution, but in such a way where, you know, you and I, George, are sitting side by side on the trading desk platform, like in the same right. building. So, so you, we're trying to treat that cohesiveness, that connectivity, given the fact that we're not actually physically co-located. You know, you and I could be on opposite mm-hmm. sides of the world. And, and, and that creates a challenge for businesses. We, we actually faced this back, you know, 15 years ago when I was running cyber in some of the largest banks, uh, Citigroup, and I was CISO at G Capital. We had uh, communication channels that were available to certain staff members. Um, think about some of the Bloomberg terminals mm-hmm. with the ability to, to communicate, instant message each other. And there was a concern around the ability to execute you know, orders, uh, whether it be you know, equity trades or um, financial uh, other instruments, such as uh, fixed income trade platforms and other uh, type of um, financial initiation of transactions through those communication channels and presented a regulatory challenge, but also a level of transparency for compliance and, and risk management. And now um, fast forward to you know, 2021, you know, the abundance of communication channels has just exploded. And now you know, organizations, particularly within financial services, banking, highly regulated institutions need to think about the precision around the, you know, introduction of these distributed distributed communication channel platforms, trying to achieve that collaboration, but also how do you balance that with the risk of losing data, um, introducing regulatory you know, oversight or fines or compliance matters, gaining a level of transparency into what's being communicated uh, between individuals. And, and you know, this is an area where uh, most companies are just shutting off and disabling core functionality. And unfortunately uh, through that, it creates bad behavior. Uh, now, mm-hmm. now if I need to communicate to a counterparty across the world to execute, let's say, you know, a trade order. Um, if I can't do that through my, you know, my communication channel platform on my desktop, I'm going to find some other way. And, and, right. and so you, the last thing you want to do is buy, you know, encourage that behavior. So you want to kind of provide that balance between, yes, you have a day-to-day uh, responsibilities, job, tasks to execute. We're going to introduce this capability, um, this new technological platform, providing fluid and constant communications, but we're going to apply some seatbelts. We're mm-hmm. going to apply some safeguards to it. And, and, and therefore, um, that's you know, really the balance is encouraging the use of these platforms, but uh, through uh, the use of uh, safety measures. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I think 
if you have, well, two reasons. If you have one half of the organization clamoring for a, a Zoom or it's user-friendly, whatever, and you have the other half saying no, then you basically turn the first half into hackers. They'll just figure a way around, right? The second problem being that security continues to be seen as not friendly to business growth, right? They're just seen as blockers and um, then you win no favors when you have to put in other uh, security measures and you need cooperation from the rest of the business, right? But they're like, ah, security, they're always getting in the way, right? Exactly, yeah. And that, that's, uh, that perception is actually quite dangerous because uh, number one, you know, you're, you are perceived as a roadblock. You're an inhibitor to productivity, collaboration. And as a result, um, the security organization as a whole loses credibility with the business, with the end user. And, and that um, essentially creates a bypass of what you're trying to achieve as a mission, which is to protect the company's data and the company assets. So um, flipping that dialogue from saying no all the time to it's a matter of how, right? How do we right. accomplish this objective? And, and that's, a, that's a cultural shift and requires, you know, uh, quite frankly, soft skills and maneuvering uh, by the security organization with the, with the business owner and the end user uh, to yeah. understand and appreciate their mission objective. And then you're prescribing uh, an approach that's safe and sound uh, for them to pursue their day-to-day -day activities. Yeah, I, I saw on uh, Twitter the other day, a, a, a tweet that stood out as, you know, your job is to minimize risk, not eliminate risk, right? Because you can just shut everything down and then, then the business goes nowhere. Back with Chris Hetner in a moment. If you like this episode of First Watch and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You can catch up on past episodes, like our interview with John Bateman, about how deep fakes and disinformation can affect the financial sector. And you'll get new ones straight to your feed. Now, let's get back to it with Chris Hetner. You're on a lot of boards. You have yourself, you know, communicated risk to boards. Um, we're always interested to understand what is your advice for CISOs who are trying to communicate new risks to boards. And I ask that because we saw post pandemic, post uh, work from home, CIOs getting elevated to board level positions. We've seen with the ransomware pandemic, for lack of a better term, more boards looking for directors with cybersecurity expertise. So now we're seeing a shift in in the expertise level at the board uh, level, but I, I want to understand like how would you, what would you advise a CISO on how to communicate, you know, new risk versus, you know, just new shiny objects to to a board? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question, George. And it actually hits a, a nerve of mine. <laughs> I've been particularly focused on over the last six years, uh, you know, spending four years at the commission, helping to, you know, inform, you know, rulemaking policy, cyber risk governance principles, particularly through the guidance uh, that was issued in 2018. Last couple of years since I've exited uh, the government, uh, I've been working on a board, uh, working with, you know, tens of thousands of, of board members as a senior advisor to the National Association of Corporate Directors, as well as to help, you know, pivot the cyber uh, dialogue in the board from more of a traditional technical maturity level discussion to now applying more financial business 
and operational outcomes to the cybersecurity program. And look, I, I was a global CISO for GE Capital. We were a $500 billion financial institution. We had uh, upward of 100,000 employees operating over 60 countries, extremely complex organization. And this was about a decade ago. And, you know, I struggled uh, with, with the right level of communication. And I appreciate uh, the challenge that the cybersecurity community has with, with, you know, advancing the dialogue in the boardroom. And you've got a dynamic where on one end of the spectrum, the cybersecurity organization, you know, what I call that organization, I also call out the CISO, but typically very entrenched in the technology nuance. Mm-hmm. And, and they, as they should be, you know, they, they need to understand um, the technical implications associated with protecting the enterprise but they tend not to uh, pivot uh, cleanly to the business or to the boardroom. And then on the other side of the spectrum, the board does not appreciate and understand what management is articulating in terms of cyber. Mm -hmm. And there's a clear disconnect between the two. I'll give you one statistic that will be relevant to the audience. We, uh, at the NACD last year, we issued a survey across our uh, 25,000 members and 75% came back with a result that was quite alarming. And we asked the question, you know, are, do you understand what management CISO communities communicated to the board? 75% were in the bucket of, we don't understand what's being communicated. There's, you know, a um, lack of trust in terms of what management is articulating. We have no action. We don't know hmm. what to do and, and, and exercise our governance and risk responsibility. And in many cases, it was, we don't have any KPIs. There's no performance metrics applied to management on the cybersecurity program. So it's a, it's a major disconnect. And I think we're, we're at a, an inflection point where the cybersecurity industry needs to be more pivoted towards you know, the business leader, the shareholders, the regulators, expecting more of a transparent and quantitative means for evaluating and understanding the cybersecurity exposure. In fact, at the SEC, when we issued the 2018 guidance for publicly listed companies, this is exactly what principles were in place and were expected of public traded companies as they, as they prepare for cybersecurity uh, disclosures in terms of risk and incident. So it's a bit of a, you know, you need to think through, yes, if there's an incident and there's a material event to your business, that's a reportable event and should be shared mm-hmm. with the board, shared with the stakeholders. But the guidance went a step further. It said beyond incidents, we also want you to understand where your risks are. So how do you treat your risks? How are you understanding the relevance of the risk to the mission of your business? And there's a you know heightened expectation where the, the board and management and the risk management community need to apply more of a business, you know, financial operational risk lens on those cyber events. So it's incumbent on the CISO community to now start to make that pivot and translate those, you know, those, those metrics and the state of the cyber hygiene relative to those core principles that not only expected of, you know, we'll call it, you know, the regulatory community, the investor community, but it's increasingly being expected by the board and it helps to translate you know, the tactical nuance to something that's more actionable. So I'll just give you an overview of what I'm seeing in the market and what I'm 
mm-hmm. advocating for. And, you know, as I advise boards, I sit on boards, I, I push this agenda into the boardroom with sometimes the CISO is, you know, you know, fighting along the way. And eventually I just got to pull them into the, over the line. In other cases, the CISOs are like, you know, extremely relieved that yes, this is a vision that I'm comfortable with that we can gain some success here. So think of it as, you know, constant treatment of your individual health, right? You, you go to the doctor, you, you get treated for certain ailments and you continue to monitor your progress along the way. No different than cyber risk management. So what we're seeing in the risk management in the boardroom community is this continuous assessment of risk. And you're pairing your cyber risk to scenarios that are material to your business. So a hospital is going to look different from a financial institution to look different from a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And so there's almost this business oriented relevance and you s- select specific categories of losses, again, relevant to your business, such as intellectual property theft, right. a business interruption event that could be a ransomware event, loss of customer data. And you start to round out that assessment uh, relative to the efficacy of your cyber defenses. How well are we treating or buying down this risk? A lot of this data sits within the cyber insurance industry which is an area that I've been focused on over the last couple of years when I was with Marshall McClellan and company, pulling through analytics and data sets that are based on actual loss experiences yep. in the real world. And, and you starting to pair the cyber event relative to the impact, specific loss categories, relative to how well you were able to defend against that attack. And then the balance is, understanding of the economic exposure applied in business terms and operational terms. And then over time, you're trying to strengthen your cyber hygiene along the way. And ultimately, that should be packaged into the boardroom output report. Beneath the surface, absolutely, you can have the gory details around your SOC operations and how many, you know, phishing attempts you blocked Mm -hmm. and and what's your patch, you know, penetration? <laughs> Absolutely, but that's not what's being presented to the right. board. And look, I made that mistake. I, I I went down that rabbit hole when I was a CISO ten years ago, and when we presented to the risk management community and the committees, it was like deer in the headlights. So yeah. so the board report out um, should be informed by this level of insight. Um, you can map to NIST. You can look at specific ratings and vulnerabilities. Um, analytics that are pulled through from the cyber insurance industry. And then ultimately you're presenting to the board, here's my overall unaddressed cyber exposure. We'll call it you know, $250 million. We've made these calculations. It's based on real experiences. It's based on specifics to our business. Now we have some decisions to make. How much of my risk are we willing to accept? How much of this can we transfer <clears throat> using an efficient um cyber insurance policy. And then the balance is how much of this do we manage down? Yep. So relative to that top line risk exposure, here are the levers we need to pull across the organization in order to remove, let's say $100 million of that unaddressed cyber exposure. We can do better on perimeter defense. We can eliminate these poor suppliers that we continue to outsource our data to. We could improve our phishing uh, attack uh, simulation because we have an unaware 
employee base. So let's ratchet up our training awareness. So, so, and then over time, quarter over quarter, as you present to the board, again, you're, you're tapping into that top line uh, financial exposure and you're pairing that to ideally a reduction in risk based on investments. Now, and that does, and that I think using that PL model would also help since boards have that fiduciary responsibility, right? Once they understand the dollars and cents, they don't need the, the tech so much. That's that's to be the tech trench, is, trench, trenches with your with your CIO and stuff like that. But keep it out of the boardroom. Like you, yeah. you know, look, and, and if you're a publicly listed company, it's 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 codified in in regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, critical that companies make any required disclosure on their risks and incidents, and they should have protocols in place to determine the potential materiality of such risks and incidents that these matters have on the company and its business, its financial condition, and the result of operations. Now, you tell me. If I'm going to communicate to the board, say, listen, we have 25% patch penetration, you know, that doesn't translate to right, an sure. impact on my business financial condition result of operation. Right. If I can apply some type of uh, material threshold to talk about the impact from a financial business perspective, now it's a different dialogue. And to your point, George, you're speaking the language of the board, right? We're, we're, we're you know, eliminating that knowledge gap and we're equipping the board with the ability to exercise their fiduciary responsibility. Yeah, and that, that brings me to very recent news, which I, th I think really stood out uh, this week, right? Which is when you look at the current and near-term risk landscape, I, I'm curious, given your background with the SEC, to get your take on the implications of, of the SEC's recent enforcement actions against Cetera. I mean, I think that stood out to me as a, a new level of a disclosure requirement and also nuance to their enforcement action. Yeah, so the, uh, the commission is clearly doubling down on both, you know, we'll call it the cyber exam function, which is the mm -hmm. area that I built within their technology controls program, which was largely designed for reg SCI. So those core 45 entities that are critical to the securities market. But they're, they're doubling down the resources and my former team, um, they continue to expand uh, across the various regions of the commission. So they're doubling down the expertise and resources. In fact, I, you know, I hired a number of uh, folks that worked for me at Citigroup into the SEC. So we've got, you know, they're equipped with former mm -hmm. financial services, cyber and tech folks within their examination team. And then you've got the other side of the equation, which is the enforcement division. And there was a recent post that the job posting, they're actually hiring, which is totally unprecedented, a dedicated cyber examiner within enforcement. And their sole purpose in life is going to be supporting the cyber unit's mission on going after companies that violate securities laws that aren't uh, either disclosing there's a disconnect between management and the board, as we just talked about before, and they're violating um, specific regulations such as Reg SP, Reg SID, Reg SCI, uh, not being transparent uh, from an from a investor perspective. So it doesn't surprise me that this action came. And 
the the fact that um, email accounts are being hijacked and you know, business email compromise continues to be an issue. The the relationship uh, between those types of events and the lack of you know treatment of that risk, not paying attention to the basics, is going to continue continue to be problematic for those entities that are on the recipient end of the enforcement action. And and so you know this all boils down to those basic blocking and tackling on you know safeguarding you know, personal identifiable information. Mm-hmm. In this instance, it was a Reg SP event, which is you know, ensuring that you're safeguarding the investor data. Uh, so, you know, you and I, let's say we had an investment account with these entities, suddenly uh, because their email systems were inadequate and they weren't paying attention to the basics. And, oh, by the way, you know, either the CISO or CIO, whoever management was not articulating to the board Hey, we have you know some matters here and investments that need to be made in order to address these areas. Uh, it's just you know you know boils down to um, an action that the the commission and other regulators uh, will take. I mean, the commission is just one area. What if this was a GDPR event within right. Europe? Uh, the fines and, and the implications that can be extremely problematic, extremely costly uh, for for the organization. So uh, more to come on enforcement. And I will tell you, George, the commission is undergoing a, a rule proposal uh, for cyber risk governance. And mm. I suspect that they're going to take the 2018 guidance that we issued and going to flip this to now more of a rule, that there's going to be concrete, you know, specific requirements for management. When I say management, I mean the CISO. But it's mm-hmm. beyond the CISO. It's the CISO, it's the general counsel, it's the chief risk officer, compliance officer. You, know, you bring the whole of management and they're applying a financial implication, a systemic risk impact associated with their cyber, the health of their cybersecurity program up through the board of directors. Yep. And okay. ultimately, uh, that sets the stage for proper uh, transparency and disclosure. Because if you disclose for the SAC, the, the commission is not looking for companies to disclose for the purpose of disclosing. Right. They want you to have, you know, they, they want to feel comfortable that you have um, a strong risk management program, a culture of, you know, that security is top of mind and that you, you have the right protocols in place in order to assert uh, whether certain events are material or not. Yeah, for sure. That's, um, that's very good to know. We'll, we'll look for that. Um, okay. So in the final minutes here, I do want to, we've waited a long time to address the elephant in the room, which is ransomware. (laughs) So, um, I, I wrote a a post that harkened back to a previous interview we did that basically likened how every company, no matter what you think you are, is actually a software company. I think this is especially true for financial services. So many rely on proprietary algorithms and and trading vehicles that some, I feel like some institutions, this is purely anecdotal. It feels like they have more developers than they have investment bankers, right? (laughs) So just want to get your take on, is this a mindset that, that you see occurring with your former colleagues that financial service is now more software than it is kind of, you know, the guys on the floor shouting, calls and puts like so what are the implications there for 
for security teams. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, they, they, the banks are, um, you know, they, they're essentially software and technology companies. Uh, they, that's the backbone of their business. And the, the bankers and the staff outside of IT are increasingly more technologically proficient, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're growing a whole generation of individuals that are, you know, or tech savvy, right? So, so you've got almost, you know, the tech team as a functional area, you have your operations team, and then you have the balance which, who are the, like the traders and the bankers. And, and we're all born through the iPhone, <laughs> the era of the right. iPhone. You know, my, you know, my, my 14 year old is, uh, you know, more proficient at technology than, than some of my, you know, my colleagues that uh, my friends that, that aren't necessarily in cyber, but it's, um, yeah, so, so tech is here. It's, it's here to stay. It's obviously um, ingrained into our culture. And uh, as such, the, the enterprise, which includes you know, banks and financial institutions, uh, are operating as a technology company. Um, and, and so you know, we need to think through, the, obviously, the regulatory, the risk implications, the uh, what are the right skill sets that need to be had by individuals um, in the organization and, and creating a level of responsibility. Like, you know, you as an individual that's executing a trade on behalf of the bank, on behalf of customers, um, you have a, you know, you have a responsibility to execute that, that action responsibly using technology. And, and so there needs to be a culture of appreciation, some ethical components there. And, and so that's more inward thinking from a company perspective and from a regulatory, you know, financial market oversight perspective. Yes. You know, the, by evidence of my former team, I mean, that, that technology controls program didn't exist, um, you know, 10 years ago. Now it's, they've got, can tell you the number of staff, but they have a number of technologists that are in the regulatory role. Uh, the U.S. Treasury is looking at this from a systemic risk perspective. So historically, it was all about the brick and mortar financial institution. Uh, but now we're looking at the implications across um, the cloud community, across the, yeah, for sure. uh, the various other technology um, dependencies, such as AWS, Google, Azure. Um, th- these are essentially extensions of the banks. Yeah. And, and so... Um, this, this needs to be thought through more holistically as an integrated technological system. Sure. All right. Well, just want to turn our attention in the, in the last moment here to a couple of questions I got on, on LinkedIn. So the first being, um, how are financial institutions thinking about, you know, disinformation, brand extortion, basically the manipulation of the information environment that could include market manipulation, you know, whether it's something as simple as a, as a pump and dump scheme or something much more nefarious designed to create doubt or, or so risk into market sensibilities that feels less tangible. You know, you can't get that. It's not a payload. It's not a, you know, a file it's, it's fighting in an information space. It's definitely, it's definitely, you know, an issue uh, just in general misinformation. Um, I, you know, I, I, I would categorize that into like data integrity. You know, if I, mm-hmm. if I expect an institution uh, to reflect 
their earnings uh, to reflect their culture, their business strategy in such a way. Um, and, and there's a deviation of that projection through social media, through other actors, um, then, then that becomes an integrity issue around that, that, that data. So um, that needs to be of, of concern by the, you know, the institution, particularly around uh, those executives that are highly vocal on social media and very active. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you become a target uh, and easily attacked by, you know, whether it be an adversary, it could be a competitor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's looking to say, hey, you know, our business is better than yours. You know, we, we, you know, we have the secret sauce, you don't. But the, um, the fact that, you know, I could, you know, actually, let's pause here. Hold on one second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we pause? Yeah. My dog's ready to bark. Because my okay. daughter just left. No. Yeah. So the uh, the executive suite uh, needs to be very uh, conscientious of their social media footprint. Um, companies need to be conscientious of their just general footprint across um, social media protection of their brand. And in fact, when I was a CISO, uh, we had um, platforms that would actively probe. The market um, mm-hmm. for any type of you know false website or any types of uh, scam email campaigns that perpetrated to be represent our brand inappropriately, and we you know actively take down uh, those platforms to ensure that you know our our consumers um, our customers were aware that the, these you know false um, you know websites or emails were active and. You have to be proactive, also with with the uh, with the messaging. You know, it's it's not not an issue to state that hey, you know, there's an active campaign that's pretending to be our company that's sending out these phishing emails. Be you know, beware. Uh, so that level of uh, transparency to your customers is critical. And in terms of market manipulation, you know, using social media or other data aggregation platforms, that that is extremely uh, lucrative and, and, and highly targeted by threat actors. I mean, th- there was a case um, that the SEC combined with Department of Justice. Uh, they took down a Ukrainian-based, uh, we'll call it Eastern European Ukrainian-based uh, group that was targeting the Newswire. And the Newswire was essentially hacked in such a way that they were able to scrape specific data sets before it became public um, and we're able to time the scrape of that data, execution of those targeted trades before it went public. And the result was roughly $100 million in illicit gains. So there's an, there's an example of you know, manipulation of data uh, before it gets public. But on the adverse, I can issue false data about you know, your earnings um, and you know, perhaps uh, even issue a scam that's indicating that, hey, you know, the intellectual property of your particular company or platform has been leaked. And therefore, um, you know, beware that, you know, th- this company can't be trusted. So, so brand reputational trust uh, should be paramount for any type of organization, uh, given the propensity and the use of social media and other types of platforms. Understood. Okay, well, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, I appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. So thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. 
George, it's been a pleasure and look forward to continuing the dialogue. All right. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. Take it easy. Fantastic. That's it for First Watch today. A big thanks to our special guest, Chris Hetner. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber. It's produced by Chloe LeClaire with help from Phil Totora. Edited by David Traunstein with original music by Matthias Zaffaletti. Subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay safe, stay strong.